0: Welcome to Ascension Developments, the the podcast.
1: All right, welcome once again to Sentient Developments, the podcast. As always, I am your host, George Dvorsky, and this is the podcast of my blog, Sentient Developments, where I cover such topics as science, technology, futurism, transhumanism, and bioethics. For today's episode, going to focus a bit more on the science side of things, going to look at uh, some of the most powerful forces in the universe and rank the most powerful forces in the universe also going to look into the uh, recent uh, controversy that erupted after a lab a Dutch lab recreated or re-engineered the bird flu virus to be an airborne virus and the implications of doing such a thing going to also talk about the uh, trend now toward, um, or the impetus rather, toward nuclear disarmament. The Obama administration got, kind of got this rolling a couple of years ago, and I'd like to just both look at uh, both sides of the issue, if you will. So kind of a, didn't really intend it to be this way, but kind of a doom and gloomy kind of uh, a podcast, both in terms of looking at the most powerful forces in the universe, and bird flus, and re- self-replicating viruses, and nuclear War and, well, hopefully, find a positive note, nuclear disarmament. So that'll be the episode today. But before we get into those segments, just going to uh, res- uh, address some, some personal notes uh, as 2012 gets underway here. Uh, December was, for all intents and purposes, kind of a write-off in terms of diet and exercise. Uh, Christmas can be very disruptive to routine. And uh, also, given that everybody's shoving... Um, different types of foods in your face that aren't necessarily uh, the best and the healthiest of foods. It's kind of a very challenging month for those of us who are uh, health conscious. So basically, I had designated December to be um, not really a strict month in terms of diet and exercise because it's also hard to get out to the gym uh, being, um, being Christmas and visiting families out of town and so on. So, that, and I also think, just as an aside, I also think that it is important sometimes to let yourself uh, indulge in some of these things from time to time. I think 100% compliance when it comes to any anything uh, often will lead to inevitable crash and failure. And uh, a friend of mine once put it to me very, um, uh, very excellently when he said, "In order to succeed, you have to fail." And sometimes the uh, the so called eighty twenty rule can apply to these sorts of things. So I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing to, you know, uh, once in a while indulge, so long as you know and you have the discipline to get back on track at some point. And that's pretty much where I am right now, now that we're approaching um, and well, well into January of 2012, and Christmas is now definitely behind us, and all the, f- the chocolates and the uh, cakes and the foods are pretty much gone. So uh, basically restocking the kitchen in such a way to reduce potential for... Uh, for, for cheating and for f- uh, going astray on, uh, on the diet. And again, specifically, I'm referring to the paleo diet that I do uh, subscribe to. Also for January and February, I'm going to be joined by my eldest son, who's 14 years old. And he's seen me do the paleo thing now for well over a year, and uh, he's quite curious about it. And he wants to give it a shot. And uh, so what I did is I said, well, don't, don't think of it as a thing that you're going to do permanently, but give it uh, 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 like a 30-day challenge and see how you feel, and see what, what what it'll be like when you come out outside the other side of it. Um, maybe you'll find it was not for you, or so on, but I think if you keep your goals realistic that way, and kind of compartmentalize it, I think you stand a much better chance for success. My son's also doing this in conjunction with CrossFit. I do have him, uh, along with his younger brother, who's 12, signed up for a CrossFit a teen program at our gym, which is just outstanding, and they have a love-hate relationship with it, as I think uh, do a lot of people. I mean, because it is intense, uh, strength and conditioning work, and it can be very tough sometimes. But uh, they, hey, they've stuck with it and they want to keep on going. So uh, I think that's pretty amazing. So yeah, uh, so when once I heard that my um, my eldest wanted to get in on the paleo, it really kind of even motivated me even further to. To get back into it, so uh, in, in a more stricter fashion. So uh, I think we're gonna start in earnest next week, and we're gonna dial in the paleo. And uh, it's interesting because, on uh, a couple of notes as well. Um, now that I'm getting back to the gym and doing CrossFit regularly again, uh, I really felt the effects. By the way, of poor eating, and I really did eat like crappy stuff, like like lots of lots of uh, cakes and pies and chocolates. And, uh, even lots of cheese and, uh, obviously some more, more wine than I hope to even think about. And boy, oh boy, do you ever bring it to the gym with you? And just felt sick and, uh, miserable. And, uh, just, I had, we, mind you, we had a couple of really tough workouts recently. But, uh, if you ever want, you know, talk about quantified self type, you know, analysis, all you need to do is, uh, go off paleo for a while, head back to the gym and do, and expect to do the same kind of, uh, work that you were doing previously when your diet was dialed in, and it 's not going to happen, so that to me was proof positive that once when I, I know that when i 'm I know how I feel at the gym doing these kinds of workouts when i 've been eating properly, and I certainly did not feel that way so that 's definitely was one lesson learned this last December uh, when you go off uh, uh, go off the diet so obviously big uh, as you 're getting a sense i 'm very keen on uh, reducing my sugar intake, and that 's certainly I think where a lot of um, a lot of the thinking is that these days, uh, is increasingly we're increasingly finding the detrimental effects of sugar, uh, its impact on everything from uh, uh, our blood sugar levels, through to even uh, being regarded as a toxin and, and the causes of such things as cancer and diabetes and other uh, other kinds of uh, ailments. And uh, that said, though, tr- at the same time, trying to keep my sanity about it because I do have a, have an awful sweet tooth. So what we do here at our household is we um, keep in the shelf uh, 85% dark chocolate. And uh, obviously, the dark chocolate's got some positive uh, things about it, including uh, its antioxidant qualities. and It tastes wonderful. And at 85%, sometimes we get 90%, uh, we keep our sanity in uh, in that we can still indulge in some chocolate from time to time. And it reminds me of a quote from uh, uh, Hippocrates, who once said, uh, Make food your medicine, and make medicine your food. And I'm at the stage right now where virtually everything I eat, I have to think of it in terms of what are its beneficial qualities. And if it doesn't have any beneficial qualities, if it's empty calories or devoid of nutrients or um, those sorts of things, then I have to seriously question why am I eating it. And at the same time, uh, it has to still be tasteful and wonderful and it has to be emotionally satisfying. And I think um, uh, paleo, uh, really, uh, the great thing about it is it allows you to do that. So um, stocking the kitchen with all the good things and removing all the bad things is definitely an important step. And, uh, and we are also, me and my son, um, going to look, uh, into some new recipes and try to get a bit more creative in the kitchen. My son likes to help me out in the kitchen when we cook. Um, I am a single dad, so it does help to have uh, basically some teamwork in the kitchen. And it's great that my eldest is keen to do that. So we're going to hit some of the books. Uh, I've got Rob Wolf's Paleo Solution, and he's got some excellent uh, suggestions in the back. And we're going to uh, uh, see what we can do and be a bit more creative. Because one thing about um, at least my lifestyle and my, my patterns is I, I tend to get very satisfied with a very limited a number of meals and it becomes very convenient to, you know, prepare the same things over and over and over again, you know, whether it be rotisserie chicken that you get at the, uh, at the grocery store and, uh, just put in some steamed vegetables, um, you know, base or, you know, put together, uh, or even putting together, I uh, like to make some ground beef uh, and makes kind of a Mexican thing, and uh, these things are very tasty. But uh, you know, when you have it like every second day or every third day, it gets a bit wearisome. So we're going to think outside the box a little bit and see if we can get creative in terms of the recipes. So, and uh, just to end this note on this note, um, also uh, basically trying to um, focus in in January and February, both in terms of diet and exercise, because the CrossFit Open is scheduled to start, I believe, at the end of February, and this is another thing that's big for me is uh, is the competitive side of things, and uh, I think it's also it's particularly important for me to remain focused and uh, goal oriented when I know that there all this effort that I mean, sure, I definitely do this from a, the perspective of health, uh, both in terms of physical health, psychological health, and in, and in terms of my life extension strategy. There's no question about it. But, uh, that's why I do it. But the secondary kind of, uh, you need to kind of, those are kind of long-term goals. But I think it's also important to have short-term and medium-term goals that justify and reinforce to you why you're, you're as strict when, as, as you are when it comes to diet and exercise. So for me, it's the competitive side of things. So CrossFit has uh, the, the CrossFit games, which is, uh, it's set up to uh, determine who the fittest athlete is on the planet. It's a rather bold claim, but that's the claim that uh, that they're making. And mind you, I have, uh, I'm not even remotely close to being uh, at that kind of a competitive level. Don't don't get me wrong here. Uh, I'm not even suggesting that I can keep up with uh, with with that that crew or even a lot of the crew in my own gym. But what's really interesting about this uh, competition is that it's open to everyone and anyone who does CrossFit. And uh, you're able to sign off. Basically, uh, I remember last year. There was the first year that they did it, that in, that it involved everybody. And I believe that, and I, I'm quite sure this is probably true. But while while they were doing it, it was the largest single uh, competition in in the history uh, of athletics, because there were thousands. I think there were some twenty thousand participants. and I'm, I could be wrong. There might have even been more than that. Uh, around the world, and you, because you, you were at, at your gym and you had, uh, the judges at your own gym, um, assessing you and making sure that you're making the, the correct movements and, uh, completing the, uh, the, uh, the workouts properly. And, uh, if you didn't have that, you could submit your, uh, performance on, on a video like YouTube or something like that and have it evaluated that way. So, by virtue of using technologies and social networking technologies, uh, they were able to pull off a competition that involved well over twenty thousand people. So that's why uh, I can participate in this thing myself. And being somebody who is—I um, mean, I'm not athletic by any stretch of the imagination. Um, I, I do what I can when it when it comes to these things. Uh, but I, in, a, in that, in, in addition to that, being uh, forty-one years old, turning forty-two th- this year, I, I obviously can't keep up with the twenty-six-year-olds and the twenty-three-year-olds, and even a lot of the thirty-somethings. So. Um, what i like uh, what i like to be able to do though is just see where i do rank um not just amongst the entire uh community of crossfitters but um over time just to see where do i fit within my own reference group which would be 40 you know early 40 something males and uh, that to me would be i don't think they're there yet in terms of quantifying uh that i think they only go they they have uh, up till. Age 45 and under, and then from there they break it down into 45, 50, and so on. So I've still got a few years to go before I I get into that category. So right now I am technically still competing against you know uh, the 20-somethings and the 30-somethings. So I I'm forced to kind of see where I I am um, situated relative to those athletes. Anyways, it's uh, regardless of that, it's still very motivating for me to compete and to see my score and to see if I can even do it because a lot of these a lot of these uh, movements and uh, competitions are very very challenging and uh um it's um uh, it's just even just even just completing it and, and completing some of these workouts sometimes is 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 enough and uh that uh, uh anyways that's so that's com- that's a uh, that's coming up at the end of february so i do have the next 6 weeks or so to to again dial in the diet uh, get back in, uh, in, in that kind of competitive shape and be driven to, cause I think it takes, the, the competition takes about four to six weeks. There's basically one workout per week over the course of six weeks. Uh, that, at least that's what they did last year. So it's, a, because it's a good span of time, it's a good span of time to get your act together in the gym and, uh, be focused and, uh, make sure that all the other parts of your life are in order so that you can maximize your performance during these competitions. So there you have it. Uh, wow. Spent more time talking about that than I had anticipated. But uh, yeah, January and February, getting back on track, both in terms of exercise and diet. I will certainly keep you posted and let you know how we're doing, both uh, in, uh, in the family, in terms of keeping up with the paleo and the kinds of recipes that we uh, come up with. And also, of course, my CrossFit, uh, both in terms of getting uh, back into shape and waiting for the competition to start in late February. Okay, let's take a quick break here, listen to some music. And when we get back, we're going to rank the most powerful forces in the universe. comes to talking about the forces that are at work in the universe, it's uh, quite evident that some are more powerful than others. And just so that I'm clear, I'm not talking about the uh, four fundamental forces of nature. Um, A force in the context that I'm talking about here is any kind of phenomenon in the universe that exhibits a powerful effect or an influence on its environment. And many of these phenomena, quite obviously, They depend on these four basic forces to function, and these four forces I'm referring to are things like gravity, uh, electromagnetism, the weak interaction, and the strong interaction. But it's the collective and emergent effects of these fundamental forces that I'm interested in. And when I say power, I don't just mean the capacity to destroy or even to wreak havoc, though that's an important criteria here. A force should be considered powerful if it can if it can profoundly reorganize or manipulate its environment in a coherent or constructive way albert einstein he once quipped that uh, the most powerful force in the universe was compound interest and while he does have a point and with all due respect to the master i now present to you the four most powerful phenomenon currently making an impact in the universe, number four are supermassive black holes. And before I get into this discussion of supermassive black holes, here's a clip, an audio segment, giving you a very brief overview as to uh, what we mean by black holes and uh, what, uh, why they would be a particularly uh, powerful force in the universe. So here, quick, have a quick listen. Earlier this year,
2: scientists caught the first ever glimpse of one of the rarest of all astronomical events, a black hole gobbling up a star in a distant galaxy. Black holes are the cookie monsters of the universe, consuming everything in their path. The unfortunate star called Swift J1644 plus 57 actually met its demise 3.9 billion years ago, but we're just seeing it happen now. Astronomers had never caught a black hole in the act before, and no wonder. Such an event happens only about once per 100,000 years per galaxy when a star drifts too close along its orbit. With 100 billion stars in our own galaxy, the odds of it ever happening to our own sun aren't very high, roughly one in a trillion. We're a lot more likely to be struck by an asteroid or a comet, consumed by a supernova or victim of a powerful gamma ray burst, There are black holes in our neighborhood, though Cygnus X-1 is only about 6,000 light years away. It was the subject of a famous bet when Stephen Hawking lost a wager to astrophysicist Kip Thorne over whether it really was a black hole. Black holes are points of almost infinite mass and density. A black hole with the mass of Earth would fit in the palm of your hand. They exert a gravitational pull so strong that light doesn't escape from its event horizon or point of no return which is why they're black. They are still not fully understood, and we may never know what's on the other side of the event horizon, unless we're some black hole's next afternoon snack.
1: There's no question that black holes are scary. It's the only part of the universe that can truly destroy itself. And indeed, Einstein himself, uh, whose theory of relativity opened the door to the modern study of black holes, he noted that, quote, they are where God has divided by zero. End quote. And it's been said that the gravitational singularity, uh, where the laws of physics collapse, is the most complex mystery of science that still defies human knowledge. Somewhat counterintuitively, black holes take the weakest of the four basic forces, which is gravity, to create a region of space with a gravitational field so powerful that nothing, not even light, can escape its pull. And they're called black because they absorb all the light that hits them and reflect nothing. They have a one-way surface, the event horizon, into which objects can fall, but out of which nothing, save for Hawking radiation, can escape. Again, as I noted earlier, one of the more fascinating things about black holes being as powerful as they are is that they are using the weakest force, which is gravity. And if you don't think that gravity is weak, well, I, I give you a, a present a challenge to you to stand up and jump. What you're doing there, you're actually defying gravity for a brief moment. And you have the entire mass of the planet Earth below you, pulling you down. Yet, you're able to make a quick jump and defy that gravity for a little bit. You know, obviously you end up plummeting back down. But you're not pinned to the ground uh in uh, as as it were uh, you were able to kind of break the, uh, the the force for just a brief amount of time so it just goes to show how weak when you think of the the mass the, compared your mass to com- compared to the mass of the planet earth uh you get you get the sense as to how weak it is but as black holes indicate you get enough mass together and you can get some pretty interesting results and suddenly gravity becomes a rather uh spectacularly powerful force Now, black holes can vary in size and gravitational intensity. Supermassive black holes are a million to a billion times the mass of a typical black hole. Most galaxies, if not all, are believed to contain supermassive black holes at their centers, including our own Milky Way galaxy. Now, recent studies are suggesting that they are much larger than previously thought. Computer models reveal that the supermassive black hole at the heart of the giant galaxy M87 weighs the same as 6.4 billion suns, which is about two to three times heavier than previous estimates. That's a lot of pull. Now, should anything have the misfortune of getting close enough to a supermassive black hole, whether it be gas, stars, or entire solar systems, it would be sucked into oblivion. Its gravitational pull would be so overwhelming that it would hurl gas and stars around it at almost the speed of light. The violent clashing would heat the gas up to over a million degrees. Now some have suggested that the supermassive black hole is the most powerful force in the universe. And while its ability to destroy the very fabric of space and time itself is undeniably impressive to say the least... Its localized and limited nature prevent it from being ranked any higher than fourth on my list. A black hole would never subsume an entire galaxy, for example, at least not within cosmologically long time frames. Basically, what I'm saying is that because it's so highly local and because it takes uh, extremely long uh, time frames to sometimes do its work, uh, it can't be considered any higher than the fourth most powerful. Okay, so that was black holes. Supermassive black holes. Now, number three on our list of the most powerful forces in the universe are gamma-ray bursts. The power of gamma-ray bursts, also referred to as GRBs, now this defies human comprehension. So, imagine this. Uh, take a hypergiant star that's at the end of its life, and this is a, a massive object that's about 150 times larger than our own. Imagine that, 150 times larger than our own sun. And extremely high levels of gamma radiation from its core it's causing its energy to transform into matter. And there, there's a resultant drop in energy that causes the star to collapse. And this results in a dramatic increase in the thermonuclear reactions that was burning within it. All of this added energy overpowers the gravitational attraction, and it explodes in a fury of energy. The hypergiant has now gone hypernova. This is not fiction. It's not theory. This stuff has been observed. Hypernovas of this size can instantly expel about 10 to the power 46 joules. This is more energy than our sun produces over a period of 10 billion years. 10 billion years in one cataclysmic explosion. Hypernovas can wreak tremendous havoc, quite obviously, in its immediate local area. And it effectively will sterilize the region if there was any life in that area. I've even heard some accounts say that it might—it could be as much as a quarter of a galaxy, which is astounding. That's 25,000 light years kind of a diameter. Um, it's astounding. These explosions produce highly collimated beams of hard gamma rays that extend outward from the exploding star, and any unfortunate life-bearing planet that should come into contact with those beams would suffer a mass extinction, if not total extinction depending on its proximity to the supernova. Gamma rays would eat up the ozone layer and indirectly cause the onset of an ice age due to the prevalence of NO2 molecules. Supernova can shoot out direct beams of gamma rays to a distance of 100,000 light-years, while super hypernovas disperse gamma-ray bursts as far as 500 to 1,000 light-years away. We're currently able to detect an average of about one gamma-ray burst per day, and that is across the entire universe, at least what we can see of the universe from our Hubble bubble. So again, that was one per day across the universe. So there's one, that's one massive catastrophe uh, happening uh, per day. Because gamma-ray bursts are visible to distances encompassing most of the observable universe, which is a volume encompassing many billions of galaxies, this suggests that gamma-ray bursts are exceedingly rare events per galaxy. Determining an exact rate is difficult, but for a galaxy of approximately the same size as the Milky Way, the expected rate... For hypernova type events, is about one burst every one hundred thousand to one million years. Thankfully, hypergiant Eta Carinae, which is on the verge of going nova, is well over seventy-five hundred light years away from Earth. We'll be safe when it goes off, but you'll be able to read by its light at nighttime. But not so fast; our safety may not be guaranteed. Some scientists believe that gamma-ray bursters may be responsible for sterilizing gigantic swaths of the galaxy. In some cases, as much of a quarter of the galaxy as I previously mentioned. And such speculation has given rise to the theory that gamma-ray bursters are the reason for the Fermi Paradox, or the reason why uh, advanced intelligences intelligences have not been able to colonize the galaxy. Exploding stars are continually, continually stunting the potential for life to advance making it the third most powerful force in the universe. Now, before we get on to the second most powerful force of the universe, here's a clip uh, that I found on the internet that does another uh, interesting job of uh, going over uh, what uh, are exactly gamma-ray bursts.
3: Supernovas bright enough to be seen as the distant galaxies rush away from us are trillions of times more powerful than the biggest bangs that human science can produce. But ironically, it was the hunt for illicit nuclear weapons here on Earth during the Cold War years that turned up something that was apparently even stronger than a supernova
4: satellites were launched by the U.S. government to see if the Russians were cheating on the nuclear test ban treaty, looking for gamma ray bursts. And indeed, bursts of gamma rays were detected by the satellites, except that instead of coming from the Soviet Union, they were coming from outer space. It took 40 years
3: for astronomers to find flashes of visible light that matched the locations of the intense bursts of gamma radiation. They finally found them far away, in very distant galaxies, in regions where hugely massive stars once lived.
4: If you work out the energy associated with some of these bursts, they're up to a hundred times or even a thousand times more than a supernova.
3: And so they call them hypernova stars.
4: But how could such super supernovas really exist? Most of the energy of a supernova goes off in one narrow cone. And if we happen to lie along the axis of the cone, we see the gamma ray burst, we see the hypernova.
3: So a hypernova is just a supernova that's pointed directly at you. And it'd be great to see one in our own galaxy. But none have detonated anywhere nearby since the invention of the telescope. There are some stars quite nearby that could become type 2 supernovas literally at any moment. The massive star Betelgeuse, yes, that's really how you say it, It's a glorious red supergiant at the shoulder of Orion, and it's about to pop. As is Antares, deep in the heart of Scorpius.
4: Both of them are amongst the largest stars that we know. These things are more than a hundred times bigger than our sun, right in the last stages of their evolution.
3: And so is the very photogenic Eta Carini which may actually be two stars. Astronomers have never really been able to look down into its core. This monster lives just 7,500 light-years away. It may in fact have already gone supernova. We just haven't seen it yet. We did see, in 1841, a blast from Etta Carinae that ejected a cloud about 10 times the mass of our sun. That great gush formed these beautiful lobes, which the central star, or stars, is lighting up from the inside like an exquisite Asian paper lantern. But that event was likely just a tiny foreshock of a gargantuan eruption yet to come. Astronomers have no doubt, Eta Karaini is about to spectacularly self-destruct. But that about to could go on for tens of thousands of years. That's a long time to hang around waiting by the stage door just to catch a glimpse of a superstar.
1: Okay, so that ends the uh, gamma-ray burst discussion. So we've had black holes and gamma-ray bursts. So what could possibly be more powerful than those two things? Well, there are two left. And number two is self-replication. Now, funny things started to happen about 8 billion years ago. Pieces of the universe started to make copies of itself. And this, in turn, kindled another phenomenon, natural selection. Now, this might not seem so impressive or powerful in its own right. It's the complexification and the emergent effects of this process that's interesting. What began as fairly straightforward cellular replication, at least on Earth, eventually progressed into viruses, dinosaurs, and, of course, us human beings. Self-replicating RNA or DNA has completely reshaped the planet, its surface, and atmosphere, molded by the processes of life. And it's a process that is proven to be remarkably resilient. The Earth has been witness to some extremely calamitous events over its history, namely the Big Five mass extinctions. But life has picked itself up, dusted itself off, and it's started anew. And what makes self-replication all the more powerful is that it's not limited to biological substrate. Computer viruses and memes provide other examples of how self-replication can work. Replicators can also be categorized according to the kind of material support they require in order to go about self-assembly. In addition to natural replicators, which have all or most of their design from non-human sources, i.e. natural selection, there's also the potential for this. I've got three lists here, three on the list here. Autotrophic replicators. So, autotrophic replicators are devices that could reproduce themselves in the wild and mine their own materials. It's thought that non biological autotrophic replicators could be designed by humans and could easily accept specifications for human products. There are also self reproductive systems, and these are systems that could produce copies of itself from industrial feedstocks such as metal, bar, and wire. And lastly, you've got self assembling systems systems that could assemble copies of themselves from finished and delivered parts. Simple examples of such systems have been demonstrated at the macro scale. These are obviously sp- speculative, or uh, at least certainly in their nascent stage, but it shows that uh, the potential for self-replication uh, has yet to be reached. So in this sense, ranking the powerful, most powerful forces in the universe, It's uh, when it gets to the discussion of uh, self-replication, um, while I, I, I admit that Uh, It's extremely powerful from today's perspective. It's not going to be uh, even remotely close to how powerful it's going to be in future. Now, it's conjectured that a particularly potent form of self-replication will eventually come into the form uh, of molecular manufacturing and the introduction of self-replicating nanobots. And one version of this vision is connected with the idea of swarms of coordinated nanoscale robots working in tandem. Microscopic, self-replicating nanobots may not sound particularly powerful or scary, but what is scary is the prospect for unchecked exponential growth. A fear that nanomechanical robots could self-replicate using naturally occurring materials and consume the entire planet in their hunger for raw materials. Alternately, they could simply crowd out natural life, out-competing it for energy. And this is is what has been referred to as the grey goo or ecophagy scenario. And some estimates show, for example, that the Earth's atmosphere could be destroyed by such devices in a little under two years. Meaning it would take, not saying it's going to happen two years from now, but that the process itself could take uh, that short short amount of time. Self-replication is also powerful in terms of what it could mean for interstellar exploration and colonization. By using exponentially self-replicating von Neumann probes, for example, the galaxy could be colonized in as little as 1 to 10 million years. And of course, if you can build, you can destroy. And the same technology could be used to sterilize the galaxy in the same amount of time. And for more on this topic, if you're interested, uh, check out my article entitled 7 Ways to Control the Galaxy with Self-Replicating Probes. So, self-replication is number two on my list. It's remarkable ability to reshape matter, adapt, grow, consume, build, and destroy, make it a formidable force to be reckoned with. All right, so that was number two, self-replication. So the number one most powerful force in the universe, what is it? It is intelligence. Without a doubt, the most powerful force in the universe is intelligence. The capacity to collect, share, reorganize, and act on information is unlike anything else in the universe. Intelligent beings can build tools, adapt to, and radically change their environment, create complex systems, and act with reasoned intention. Intelligent beings can plan, solve problems, think abstractly, comprehend ideas, use language, and learn. In addition, intelligence can reflect on itself, predict outcomes, and avoid peril. Autonomous systems, for the most part, are incapable of such action. Humanity, a particularly intelligent bunch owing to a few fortuitous evolutionary traits, has, for better or worse, become a force of nature on Earth. Our species has reworked the surface of the planet to meet its needs, significantly impacting on virtually every other species, bringing many to extinction and irrevocably altering the condition of the atmosphere itself. Not content to stay at home, we have even sent our artifacts into space and visited our very own moon. Now, while some cynics may scoff at so-called human intelligence, there's no denying that it has made a significant impact on the biosphere. Moreover, what we think of as intelligence today may be a far cry from what's possible. The advent of artificial superintelligence is poised to be a game-changer. A superintelligent agent, which may or may not have conscious or subjective experiences, is an intellect that is much smarter than the best human brains in practically every field, including problem solving, brute calculation, scientific creativity, general wisdom, and even social skills. Such entities may function as super expert systems that work to execute on any goal it is given, so long as it falls within the laws of physics and it has access to the requisite resources. Now that's power, and that's why it's called the technological singularity. We have no idea how such an agent will behave once we get past that horizon. Another more radical possibility, if that's not radical enough, is that the future of the universe itself will be influenced by intelligent life. So in the same way that we're impacting on the planet Earth here and its development, we as an or the Uh, some kind of artificial superintelligence may impact on the development and the unfolding of universal processes. The nature of intelligence and its presence in the universe must always be called into question. There exists only one of two possibilities. Intelligence is either one, cosmological epiphenomenon, or two, an intrinsic part of the universe's inner workings. If it's the latter, perhaps we have some work to do in the future to ensure the universe's survival or to take part in its reproductive strategy. Theories already exist in regards to stellar engineering, where a local sun could be tweaked in such a way as to extend its lifespan. Future civilizations may eventually figure out how to re-engineer the universe itself, such as reworking the constants, or create an escape hatch to basement universes. Thinkers who have explored these possibilities include Milan Sirkovich, John Smart, Ray Kurzweil, Alan Guth, and James N. Gardner. And uh this is something that interests you, I do recommend that you see Gardner's book entitled Biocosm, The New Scientific Theory of Evolution, Intelligent Life is the Architect of the Universe. Intelligence as a force may not be particularly impressive today when considered alongside supermassive black holes, gamma-ray bursters, and exponential self-replication, but it may be someday. The ability of intelligence to re-engineer its environment and work towards growth, refinement, and self-preservation give it the potential to become the most powerful force in the universe. sure many of you astute listeners and readers of my blog are well aware and are up to speed on an incident that happened a couple of weeks ago where a lab in the Netherlands engineered the the bird flu virus in such a way as it could be transmissible through the air. And this caused quite a kerfuffle, quite a controversy for obvious reasons, is they basically... Modified uh, an existing virus uh, in such a way as to make it much more dangerous to human civilization. And what's kind of upsetting or troubling about all this is that uh, they say it wasn't it wasn't even all that difficult. That they, I think they, what they said was it only required about four or five mutations, which would indicate that even uh, through regular processes of natural selection. That the bird flu virus could eventually, on its own, uh, mutate it into uh, something far more catastrophic and far more transmissible than its current incarnation as the bird flu. But more to the point of this uh, study is the potential for uh, somebody to deliberately do this, uh, some kind of a terrorist organization or rogue state to put this together. So I'm going to get into some commentary in just a second, but first here is a clip from NBC uh, as the story broke a few weeks ago. Back now with a
5: story that got our attention today. Scientists have created a flu virus on purpose in the lab that could potentially kill a lot of people. And now a big fight is about to erupt over how much to reveal to the wider world about it. We get more tonight from our chief science correspondent, Robert Bazell. Starting with the virus that causes bird flu, Two scientists have created a highly contagious version in the laboratory that one calls probably one of the most dangerous viruses you can make. A government committee is now deciding on how much detail scientific journals should reveal when they publish the studies, and the controversial decision is due soon. But some top scientists think the entire project is wrong.
1: I think it's a bad idea for us to take a lethal virus and transform it into a highly transmissible one, and I think it's a second bad idea to publish the results so others can replicate it.
5: Bird flu, called H5N1, first jumped from chickens to humans in Hong Kong in 1998 and was deadly, killing about 60 percent of the people it infected. The city stopped the 98 outbreak by killing all chickens, and since then, periodic outbreaks have occurred in Southeast Asia. But the virus has never been very contagious, infecting only a few people at a time. The two scientists, one in Europe and the other at the University of Wisconsin, genetically altered wild bird flu so it could easily be transmitted from person to person. They proved this using ferrets, which transmit flu by humans. They submitted their results to two top journals, Science and Nature. The scientists did this to see what would have to happen in nature to make a pandemic. But others say it could be a cookbook for terrorists. A government panel will soon make those recommendations, Brian, but it's
1: not certain the journals will follow them. That's all scary stuff,
5: Bob Bazell. Thanks, as always.
1: So the question needs to be asked, is there a catastrophic or even an existential risk posed by the presence of deliberately engineered viruses? And uh, the fans of apocalyptic fiction and science fiction are no stranger to this theme. When I was younger, I read Stephen King's The Stand which basically almost uh, is this story, uh, except it wasn't a research lab, it was a a military lab, we're working on um, this kind of a virus, and it leaked, and it caused pretty much, not an existential event, but it caused a catastrophic event where it killed some 99% of the human population. And uh, the story itself kind of uh, deals with uh, the uh, results afterwards as civilization tries to get itself back together again. So I think um, amongst the pundits who discuss such things as existential risks, uh, they definitely have uh, concern about it. And you'll often find that uh, deliberately engineered viruses are on the list of catastrophic and even potential, potentially existential risk. As while it may not uh, wipe out 100% of the human population, it could set us back so far civilizationally that it could pose uh, a virtual existential risk. And again that goes back to what I was saying in my previous segment about the most ranking the most powerful forces in the universe this is an example of how self-replication is extremely powerful and particularly when it gets into this kind of ex- exponential mode and uh things don't have to be big or powerful to be uh, sort of big or um strong to be powerful um we're talking about microbial agents here able to wipe out the entire uh species at least potentially anyways so looking at the, um, the reasons for this, why, why did these uh, scientists dis- do such a thing? And they claim that it was a proactive effort, that they were working to anticipate the inevitable, whether the virus will mutate on its own, or if it's going to be done deliberately by terrorists, uh, or a rogue state, or even, even potentially alone individually. And uh, this is where technology gets particularly scary as we move forward and as we progress uh, more and more in terms of the sophistication of our technologies. Is that it's it's taking less and less people uh, to wreak more and more damage. So while it took an, uh, while in our history it, it would often take an entire army to wreak havoc, uh, now we're getting down to uh, groups of individuals, and even potentially as uh, futurist Philip Van Nederwelda argues. It may even come down to a single catastrophic individual, or what he calls a CIMAD, a single individually massive destructive, what he describes as basically being the Unabomber on steroids. So you can imagine a scientist who's deranged enough, uh, jaded enough, cynical enough, nihilistic enough to want to do this, given the, uh, the know-how, could actually put such a thing together and unleash it in the human population. Uh, becoming potentially uh, the greatest serial killer or mass murder in the history of human history. And um, and I'm deliberately trying to be scary here, and uh, but also at the same time being as, as truthful and analytical as I can as a futurist, because these are, I believe, sincere and genuine threats. Uh, it's, it's one thing to kind of speculate about it. It's, it's when this stuff actually does happen that we're reminded that, uh, yeah, we are... Uh, we're constantly in peril as new technologies become more and more dispersed. And an interesting side effect or consequence of technological development is that what used to be old or what was, sorry, what used to be new and cutting edge and sophisticated technology ceases to be that after decades and centuries. Let's take the nuclear bomb, for example. We're now talking about somewhat archaic technology. We're now talking about something that was developed some 60 years ago. This isn't Bleeding edge stuff by any means. And if you think of the kinds of things like iPhones and uh, other such uh, devices, uh, uh, that's more uh, in a way more, more uh, scientific and, and more technologically advanced than the nuclear bomb. So what that, what that means is, is that the threat of accessibility and the threat of somebody else coming up with it on their own is greatly heightened. That in conjunction with the fact that all the information is becoming more and more centralized and available through the internet. So the issue never becomes or is ceasingly to become um, one of technological know-how. that That's out there. It's, it's known how to put together, uh, let's say, a nuclear device, uh, or, what, or let's say, I guess now we now have the technical know-how to put together a virus, uh, or rather mutate an existing virus. The issue now is somewhat twofold. One is, let's say in the case of the nuclear bomb, is access to resources. Can, for example, an individual or a rogue group... Um, have access to some of the more um, uh, important components of a nuclear bomb, such as uh, uh, plutonium and so on. But now, in the case of uh, the bird flu virus and what this lab has done, uh, the uh, the issue is access to the information on how they actually mutated the virus. And there's this part of the controversy is, uh, will this information be made available for other scientists? And if, if so, how easily accessible will that be for, for a malign uh, individual or group to uh, to have access to this technology? So here's where I think I'm on the side of the group that actually did this. I know they're getting maligned right now, and they're getting hammered for their irris- the irresponsibility of what they had done. But I, th- the more I think about it, the more I think that uh, I agree with their motive for doing this, which was... Not only to see if it could be done, but to see how easily it could be done, and now that we know that it can be done, is now we can prepare. Now we can prepare to meet it should it become unleashed. So, what they've actually done here is they've basically found, if you will, a kind of bomb, and now they're going to try to see if they can diffuse it. So they're going to kind of uh, work. Now I think what the now the work really starts because now what the uh, the scientists have to do is figure out okay. We have to assume that this is eventually going to leak out into the human population. And I think that's a, that's, as I pointed out earlier, that's a, as, as a tough pill that is to swallow. We have to make the assumption that this will eventually be figured out by somebody and it'll eventually be leaked out, whether by accident or whether by, or again, even random mutation naturally, uh, through the bird population or if somebody deliberately sets this out to uh, wreak havoc. We have to make that assumption. So now we have to figure out uh, how are we going to find an immunization for it? How are we going to combat it? Should it get out into the public? Even everything, this is everything, this deals with everything from uh, scientific know-how in terms of dealing with it biologically through to even sociological uh, uh, stop gaps. So how do we, for example, uh, deal with uh, um, creating, uh, let's say, zones of um, uh, to separate, for example, populations that have it, uh, uh, Basically, that's where, the, word, the word I'm desperately looking for here is quarantine, is how do we go about setting aside quarantines and other such processes for dealing with this sort of a thing? So that's my two cents on the matter. Um, I think that uh, I'm imagining a scenario now in which an epidemic, let's say, does happen and we did not, uh, let's say, try to reverse engineer this virus and didn't try to come up with some kind of prescription for it or prophylaxis for it. We'll ask ourselves, well, why didn't we do that? Why you know why? Well, this is this is kind of like that that uh, um, that kind of kind of they say hindsight is twenty twenty. Well, no, we actually have the foresight. In this case, foresight is twenty twenty. We absolutely know that this is going to happen. So there's not going to be any hindsight is twenty twenty nonsense here. If this thing should um, leak out and start to devastate the human populations, we we have no excuse now because we know uh, that we actually have to anticipate this happening, and we would regret we would regret not conducting this kind of research. So, that's my take on this. I would love to hear your feedback on this and tell me I'm wrong, uh, or tell me I'm right. Uh, But uh, I think that, um, and just as an, also as another aside, this lab wasn't the first lab to do this. I believe a Japanese team had also done this earlier. So, that even proves my point even further that if we have multiple teams coming up with the same uh, set of mutations to make this a, uh, as they said, an aerosol based um, uh, vector for transmission of the bird flu virus, then we really are in trouble here and we really need to get our act together in terms of coming up with a solution for dealing with it. Okay, let's take a break now and we're going to go from viral uh, devastation through to nuclear devastation and going to discuss the recent push behind nuclear disarmament. The idea of complete relinquishment of nuclear weapons has been around for quite some time. Obviously, ever since even the, the, the development and advent of, the nuclear, uh, of nuclear weapons and uh, our presence in the nuclear age. And in particular, ever since the end of the Cold War, it's been thought that uh, maybe we could uh, we can actually do this. We can actually get rid of these apocalyptic weapons. Because as it stands... Um, From the potential of existential risks, it is one of the more um, potent, uh, if not the only, real weapon right now that could actually uh, guarantee human extinction. So why not just, you know, get rid of it and and basically eliminate one variable uh, that could uh, undermine our species completely? And what's interesting as well is how this issue started to pick up steam once the Obama administration... uh, got settled in. Uh, Back in 2010, the administration started to make their first serious steps, both in terms of uh, initiating the conversation at the United Nations and the signing of bilateral agreements between the United States and Russia. So I'm going to play a couple of clips now uh, from various newsreels. Uh, One from Al Jazeera, which gives an overview of what happened in 2010 uh, at the U.N., and, uh, after that, uh, an interview, uh, by, uh, of Larry Bender. Now, Larry Bender, you, sorry, Lawrence Bender, uh, you'd know, uh, Lawrence Bender as the guy who did the, an inconvenient truth. And, uh, he recently made a, a, a documentary called Countdown to Zero in which he, um, talks about the potential for nuclear disarmament and how we could actually go about doing it and why we would want to do such a thing. So here's again the clips from Al Jazeera. And and, and followed by the interview of Lawrence Bender.
0: It is so decided. Consensus. The 189 countries of the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty agreed on a document outlining small steps toward the goal of a world free of nuclear weapons, including a proposal for a nuclear weapons-free zone in the Middle East. After a month of debate, posturing and argument, the final outcome was in question right down to the end. Can you tell me what's going on behind the scenes now? Is it done or is it uh, just waiting? No
5: idea. I will not tell you.
0: The last sticking point was whether or not the document would name Israel, which hasn't signed the nuclear treaty. Egyptian Ambassador Magad Abdelaziz, negotiating on behalf of the non-aligned movement and Arab states, insisted. We appreciate the good spirit that the P-5 has negotiated with us on this document. We think that it is natural that Israel should be mentioned in this part of the document. And in the end, he prevailed, despite objections from the United States. We have long supported such a zone, but we recognize that essential precursors must be in place for its achievement. We note, however, that our ability to do so has been seriously jeopardized because the final document singles out Israel in the Middle East section, a fact that the United States deeply regrets. The final document calls on Israel to join the NPT and put its nuclear facilities under international inspection by the IAEA, with a UN conference to be held in 2012 to further the goal of a Middle East free of nuclear weapons. Iran had threatened to scuttle the deal, saying the document didn't go far enough in establishing concrete steps or a timeline for the main nuclear weapon states to disarm.
6: We wanted a setting a certain timeline of 2025 uh, for total elimination of a nuclear weapon all over the world, so that we will be able to realize uh, the wish of all that we will have nuclear we uh, world without nuclear weapon.
0: In the end, no country wanted to be the one to block consensus. All one hundred and eighty nine had to agree on the final document in order for it to be adopted. and considering the last conference broke down with absolutely no agreement, any agreement is considered an accomplishment. The NPT came into force forty years ago. The challenge of disarmament and non proliferation remains just as difficult now as it was then. Kristen Salumi, Al Jazeera, the United Nations.
7: Countdown to Zero, a film that makes the case for nuclear disarmament. It's been screened by a host of administration officials, including Secretary Clinton, and it opens in U.S. theaters in July. Welcome. Let's first... We had a historic signing between the American and Russian president today, but let's first get to the film, which is... Give me the premise for the film.
6: Sure. Um, Well, Countdown to Zero is, is a terrifying... As you see, eye-opening kind of uh, wake-up call about the, the urgent threat posed by uh, terrorism, uh, proliferation, and the accidental use of nuclear weapons. And it has a great uh, group of people. And it has uh, Tony Blair, President Musharraf, uh, President Gorbachev, President Carter, President clark from South Africa, members of the CIA, Valerie Plame. I mean, it's a it's a really amazing group of people. Um, we screened the movie in Sundance uh, a couple months ago, and as you said, it's coming out in July.
7: One of the things in this agreement today, um, one of the th- the film makes a distinction between sort of nuclear weapons as we thought about them during the Cold War mm-hmm. and this new threat. That's right. Today's signing had a sort of uh, antiquated feel to it. It mm-hmm. felt like something from the '70s. How right. how big a deal was that?
6: It's a really big deal. Like everything, you need to start somewhere, and uh, this is the greatest reduction in nuclear, uh, strategic nuclear arms since in a generation. Um, and next week, as, as you know, the president's convening 47 heads of states. By the way, Washington is going to be pretty locked down mm-hmm. with 47 more decades going around. Um, but there they're going to talk about securing all nuclear materials uh, worldwide. He's, the president's got a four-year plan to do that. Um, and as a Global Zero member, uh, we support the president in this, and we urge the leaders coming into D.C. to uh, adopt his plan.
7: But the if it's the terrorist and these kind of um, st- the big state actors the president's dealing with, that's one piece of the pie. But right. what you're talking about is uh, a little bit harder to track. You won't see it going away at a signing uh, ceremony.
6: A- absolutely. But, but you have to start somewhere. So uh, the the plan that we have, uh, the Global Zero Commission has put together, uh, which is very much in alignment with where the president is heading, is you have to start somewhere. So at first, Russia and the United States have created signed a bilateral agreement. To reduce their nuclear weapons. Um, they're going to start right into another agreement, hopefully right after that. And the idea is that as the United States and Russia reduce their nuclear arms, um, then the rest of the world can then also get involved in starting to slowly uh, reduce on a verifiable, intrusive level. Um, what happens is ultimately, the only way to really stop a terrorist, who by the way can buy a bomb, mm-hmm. steal a bomb, uh, how can you stop them from doing that is to get rid of them all, to get rid of all the bombs, and to Uh, get rid of the material that they can use to make a bomb.
7: In making this case, you you have a problem, which is that most people kind of think that signing ceremonies take care of this. This is something from the past. I wonder if you can give me your sense of the Bush administration, who during the lead-up to the Iraq war, one Mm -hmm. of the things they said was, you know, if we don't do something now, (laughs) we'll have a mushroom cloud. The clear point there was it seems to be in line with what you're talking about, which is a terrorist will get nuclear material and will have a nuclear really. event. Is that similar to the case you're making or, or different?
6: Yeah, unfortunately of course the uh, administration was wrong, of course, and there weren't uh, nuclear weapons in Iraq. Uh, and, but that's, that's kind of besides the point. Um, we're at sort of what could be called the nuclear tipping point right now. For instance, if Iran acquired a nuclear bomb, then you'd have other countries in the region that might feel forced to get them as well. And all of a sudden, it's game over. Um, right now, there's about 40 countries in the world who, if they decided today they wanted one, within about a year, they could produce it. They're all nuclear-capable. They've decided not to. And we have countries that have given them up. Like uh, we talk about in the movie uh, President Clark from South Africa decided to give up. He had about six uh, uh, Hiroshima-sized uh, bombs that they gave up. Uh, when, when Russia uh, fell apart, in a sense, and uh, Kazakhstan, Ukraine... Um, and one of them losing track of. Uh, uh, I was talking to Secretary James Baker. Through sticks and carrots, they gave up the nuclear weapons.
7: What about those the, these? You know, North Korea and Iran. The the old argument is: Look, we can't give up anything because we're never going to be able to convince uh, Iran and North Korea. What do they? What does your film say about
6: that? That's right. Well, you you would have to be naive to say, of course, that you would want to give up unilaterally give up your weapons if a country like Iran acquired it or North Korea didn't give them up. So. The point is we would never want to advocate something like that. Obviously, our national security is of the highest importance. Um, The idea, though, is, and there's a commission of greater minds than mine who have put this together, and they're backed by former presidents, national security advisors, military leaders and the such, and quite a few of them that have put a plan together that deals with monitoring systems, uh, verification systems. And, again, it, it is a slow process of reducing nuclear of our nuclear arsenals, starting with the Russian United States you know we own over ninety percent of the weapons uh, around the world um, and then once we get down to a level of a thousand or so then a country like China might say okay they'd be interested in and in getting involved because the pressure now is going down before the pressure was going up we with mad mutually sure destruction Uh, United States and Russia were increasing our arsenals. Then China decided, well, of course they needed to. And we can reverse that cycle.
1: So I'm going to, uh, kind of do a bit of a counterpoint here. While it might seem intuitive and, um, uh, you know, even obvious in a certain way that uh, we need to get rid of these weapons, uh, we also have to think about, okay, what, what, um, What would happen if we actually went through this exercise of nuclear disarmament, and what would be the potential implications? And I think it's important to do this kind of a counterpoint, because most everyone agrees that humanity needs to get rid of its nuclear weapons. And there's no question that complete relinquishment will all but eliminate the threat of deliberate and accidental nuclear war, and the ongoing problem of proliferation. Indeed, the ongoing presence of nuclear weapons, it's the greatest single threat to the survival of humanity. So putting the problem into perspective, there's currently 26,000 nuclear warheads ready ready to go, and 96% of those are controlled by the United States and Russia. These two countries alone could unleash the power of 70,000 Hiroshima's in a matter of minutes. In the event of an all-out nuclear war between the U.S. and Russia, it's estimated that as many as 230 million Americans and 56 million Russians would be killed by the initial blasts. The longer-term impacts are nearly incalculable, but suffice it to say, human civilization would be hard-pressed to survive. Given the end of the Cold War, and the establishment of the START Agreements, the idea of deliberate nuclear war seems almost anachronistic. But the potential nightmare of an accidental nuclear exchange is all too real. We have already come very close on several occasions, including the infamous Stanislav Petrov incident in 1983. We are living on borrowed time. The assertion, therefore, that we need to completely rid ourselves of nuclear weapons appears more than reasonable. Our very survival may depend on it. In fact, there are currently a number of initiatives underway that are working to see this vision come true. As mentioned, President Barack Obama himself has urged for the complete elimination of nuclear weapons. But before we head down the path to disarmament, we need to consider the consequences Getting rid of nuclear weapons is a more difficult and precarious proposition than most people think. It's important, therefore, that we look at the potential risks and consequences. There are a number of reasons for concern. A world without nukes could be far more unstable, and prone to both smaller and global-scale conventional wars. And somewhat counterintuitively, the process of relinquishment itself could increase the chance that nuclear weapons will be used. Moreover, we have to acknowledge the fact that even in a world free of nuclear weapons, we will never completely escape the threat of their return. The first, and so far, final use of nuclear weapons during wartime marked a seminal turning point in human conflict. The development of the bomb and its presence as an ultimate deterrent has arguably preempted the advent of global-scale wars. It is an undeniable fact that an all-out war has not occurred since the end of World War II, and it is very likely that the threat of mutually assured destruction, also known as MAD, has had a lot to do with it. Now, the Cold War, it's a case in point. Its very nature as a war without direct conflict it points to the acknowledgement that it would have been ludicrous to engage in suicidal nuclear exchange. Instead, the Cold War turned into an ideological conflict largely largely limited to foreign skirmishes, political posturing, and espionage. Nuclear weapons had the seemingly paradoxical effect of forcing the United States and the Soviet Union into an uneasy peace. The same can be said today for India and Pakistan, two rival and nuclear-capable nations mired in a Cold War of their own. It needs to be said, therefore, that the absence of nuclear weapons would dramatically increase the likelihood of conventional wars re-emerging as military possibilities. And given the catastrophic power of today's weapons, including the introduction of robotics and AI on the battlefield, the results could be devastating, even existential in scope. So, while the damage inflicted by a restrained conventional war would be an order of magnitude lower than a nuclear war, the probability of a return to conventional wars would be significantly increased. This forces us to ask some difficult questions. Is nuclear disarmament worth it if the possibility of conventional war becomes 10 times greater? What about a 100 times greater? And given that nuclear war is more of a deterrent than a tactical weapon, can such a calculation even be made if nuclear disarmament spawns X-conventional wars with Y-casualties, how could we measure those catastrophic losses against a nuclear war that's not really supposed to happen in the first place? The value of nuclear weapons is not that they should be used, but that they should never be used. Today's global geopolitical structure has largely converged around the realities and constraints posed by the presence of apocalyptic weapons and by the nations who control them. Tension exists between the United States and Russia, but there are limits to how far each nation is willing to provoke the other. The same can be said for the United States' relationship with China. And as already noted, nuclear weapons may be forcing the peace between India and Pakistan. Now it's worth noting that conventional war between two nuclear-capable nations is akin to suicide. Nuclear weapons would be used the moment one side senses defeat. But should nuclear weapons suddenly disappear, the current geopolitical arrangement would be turned on its head. Despite its rhetoric, the United States is not a hegemonic power. We live in a de facto, multipolar geopolitical environment. Take away nuclear weapons, and we get a global picture that looks startlingly familiar to pre-World War I Europe. Additionally, the elimination of nuclear weapons could act as a destabilizing force, giving some giving some up-and-coming nation-states the idea that they could become world players. Despite United Nations' sanctions against invasion, some leaders would become bolder, and even desperate, and lose their inhibitions about claiming foreign territory. Nations may start to take more calculated and provocative risks, even against those nations who used to be nuclear powers. Today, nuclear weapons are being used to keep rogue states in check. It's no secret that the United States is willing and even thinking about bombing Iran as it works to develop its own nuclear weapons and threaten the region. If not the United States itself, Iran will soon have intercontinental ballistic capacity, and same for North Korea. It can be said, therefore, that the composition of a nuclear-free world would be far more unstable and unpredictable than a world with nukes. Relinquishment could introduce us to an undesirable world in which new stresses and conflicts rival those posed by the threat of nuclear weapons. It should be noted, however, that nuclear weapons do nothing to mitigate the threat of terrorism. Mad becomes a rather soft deterrent when political rationality comes into question. Rationality can be a very subjective thing, as is the sense of self-preservation, particularly when nihilism, and metaphysical beliefs come into play, in them, speaking obviously of religious fanaticism in particular. Even in a world where nuclear weapons are eliminated, it would not be outlandish to suggest that fringe groups and even rogue nations would still work to obtain the devices. The reasons for doing so are obvious, a grim turn of events that would enable them to take the rest of the world hostage. Consequently, we can never be sure That, at some point down the line, when push comes to shove for some countries or terrorist groups, that they'll independently work to develop their own nuclear weapons. Now, there's also the dangers of the disarmament process itself. Should the nuclear-capable nations of the world disarm, the process itself could lead to a number of problems, even nuclear war. During disarmament, for example, it's conceivable that nations would become distrustful of the others, even to the point of complete paranoia and all-out belligerence countries would have to work particularly hard to show concrete evidence that they are in fact disarming. And the evidence to the contrary could severely escalate tension and thwart the process. Some strategic thinkers have even surmised that there might be more incentive for a first strike with small numbers of nuclear weapons on both sides, where the attacking nations could hope to survive the conflict. As a result, it's suspected that the final stage of disarmament, when all sides are supposed to dismantle the last of their weapons, will be an exceptionally dangerous time. As a result, disarmament is paradoxically more likely to increase the probability of deliberate nuclear war. And in addition, concealing a few nukes at this stage could give one nation an enormous military advantage over those nations who have been completely denuclearized. This is not as ridiculous as it might seem. It would be all too easy and advantageous for a nation to conceal a secret stockpile and attempt to gain political and military advantages by nuclear blackmail or attack. So, in conclusion, I want to make it clear at this time that I am not opposed to nuclear disarmament, but what I'm trying to do here is bring to light the challenges that such a process would bring. If we're going to do this, we need to do a proper risk assessment and adjust our disarmament strategies accordingly, assuming that's even possible. I still believe that we should get rid of nuclear weapons. It's just that our nuclear exit strategy will have to include some provisions to alleviate the potential problems I just described. At the very least, we need to dramatically reduce the number of live warheads. Having 26,000 active weapons and a stockpile the size of Mount Everest is sheer lunacy. There's no other word for it. It's a situation that's begging for disaster. All this said, we must also admit that we have permanently lost our innocence. We will have to live with the nuclear threat in perpetuity, even if these weapons cease to physically exist. There will never be a complete guarantee that countries have completely disarmed themselves and that rearmament won't ever happen again in the future. But thankfully, a permanent guarantee of disarmament is not required for this process. The longer we go without nuclear weapons, the better. So there you have it. Again, um, I would love to hear your comments on this one. And uh, I'm imagining that more people might disagree than agree with me on this one, but that's all fine. It's all part of the uh, the debate and the conversation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Sentient Developments podcast. If you would like to reach out and uh, talk to me about anything that I discussed here today, you are absolutely welcome to do so. You can reach me at George at georgeatsentientdevelopments.com. You are obviously welcome as well to visit my blog, Sentient Developments, where I have many of these articles posted and links posted, and you can find further information. If this, of the subject matter interests you. So that ends this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. And uh, everyone have yourselves an outstanding week. And I will look forward to speaking to you again in about a week's time. Bye bye.
0: you listening to sentient developments.
3: Goodbye.